You know, God has not left himself without witness. He is great. He is mighty. He has shown us through creation. We have a wonderful God in heaven. And uh, to begin, if, if you were here last week with us, you heard Pastor Weiler, and, and you know, he just gave an outstanding message on redeeming, redeeming grace from Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. Redeeming grace. And in that message, you discovered how, you know, although there's nothing good in us, we are all sinners. Nonetheless, God has blessed us with his favor. He's extended grace to those that he has chosen. Scripture says, even before the foundation of the world, salvation was not our plan, it was God's plan. He came and he saved us. We didn't initiate reconciliation He initiated it. He went to the cross. He decided to save us from our sins. You know, after being convicted by our sins, each of us who came to Christ uh, came with that realization we are spiritually bankrupt, separated from God by our sins, desperately needed for someone to save us, and God saved us. He provided us a Savior. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not the result of works, lest anyone would boast. So grace is not of ourselves. Faith is not of ourselves. Grace and salvation are 100% the gift of God. I don't know if there's a better summary of God's loving kindness, His grace in our lives, His redemptive grace, Then first chapter of Titus, verses 3 through 6, where it tells us, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved of various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for all mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. And how does God save us? The passage continues. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. God's Holy Spirit changes us. He's made us alive. Again, salvation coming from God. Verse 7 says in that same passage, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We didn't deserve it, but God gave it. Scripture reminds us at the time of our salvation, whatever age that was for you, whatever period it was, we weren't seeking God. We were seeking to sin. That's what unbelievers do. But God intervened. Romans 3.11 assures us that none seeks for God, not even one. Jesus proclaims, you did not choose me, but I chose you. By God's grace, God chose Abraham, he chose Jacob, he chose King David, he chose 12 apostles. And if you are Christians here today, he chose you. The result of, of all this work of God just results in our our complete adoration of Christ. We realize we're not responsible. Jesus is responsible. He is the Redeemer. We didn't just wise up 
He came and saved us. Ephesians 2.5 says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, dead in our sins, as you heard from Pastor Wyler last week, he made us alive. So the glory of salvation, 100%, goes directly to God, and we worship and adore him. That is redeeming grace. He saved us from our sins. But although this redeeming or redemptive grace resulting in eternal salvation is exclusive to those who receive Christ as Savior, it's only for us. God's grace, His goodness, at least to some level, is not reserved only to believers. It is not reserved only to believers. There is a grace of God that extends to everybody. This is most often deemed common grace. And our God in heaven is so good, He's so generous, He is so gracious, it's important to us, uh, for us to recognize this Christmas season and praise Him for everything that He has done for all mankind. He's done wonderful things, both believers and unbelievers, this Christmas season. Because His common grace makes this a better planet to live on. It makes it a better planet to live on. 1 Timothy 4.10 is accurate when it tells us the living God, He is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. In a sense, God is the Savior of all men. Not that He redeems all men. We know that's not the case. Many, in fact, most will actually die in their sins because they will not believe on Him. But God's common grace is extended to all men in a variety of ways. And we'll look at just a few today so you and I can appreciate the principle of how God extends His common grace to the world. First, common grace is provided by God through His magnificent creation. Jesus said in His Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.45, God causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Have you ever noticed when you've driven through farm country, the rain doesn't just fall on the fields of the Christians. Did you notice that? When when the corn stretches high in the summer with the heat, when it grows tall and the corn, the, the ears get real long, believers, unbelievers, they both get it, right? That's common grace. We, we, we share similarly with unbelievers in the rain, the land to till, animals to hunt, air to breathe, homes in which to reside in. In Acts 14, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, they wanted to direct praise uh, to God by the, to the crowds in Lystra. And they said, God did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Now the greatest portion of of these crowds in in this chapter would in in a few minutes turn on Paul, drag him outside the city and stone him. These weren't believers. They weren't Christians. But while on earth, Paul says, God's filled your stomachs. He's provided you gladness and joy. He's provided you the sunshine excuse me, sunshine. This is common grace. It's common to all. It doesn't doesn't distinguish between the regenerate Christian and the unregenerate sinning pagan. Everyone receives it. It is God's goodness to His creation. 
In fact, God's grace and his goodness are so common, it's so broadly enjoyed by everybody and understood through creation that it actually becomes in the end a testimony against those who will not receive Christ as Savior. Unbelievers, instead of praising God for his creation, because of their depravity, they suppress the knowledge revealed to them and it results in greater guilt. Romans 1.18 Romans 1.18, very familiar passage. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now the question is, what kind of truth have they suppressed in unrighteousness? The passage answers, right? It goes on saying, Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them how, it says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. It's been understood through what has been created. No one has an excuse. Simply on the basis of receiving the common grace of God, that he provides to everyone, all living creation, those who refuse to believe will be condemned because they refuse to acknowledge the God who created everything. They're not judged according to what they do not know. Notice that. Whether you're in Korea, America, you're judged according, you're not judged according to what you do not know. You're judged according to what you know. Yet man still suppresses the knowledge of God, the existence of God, His power, His goodness. They're so clearly understood, simply through looking at creation, we ought to be driven to worship our Creator. The problem is, man is too depraved, doesn't want to acknowledge the type of God who would create this, the greatness of God who would create this. What would man rather do with creation? What would man rather do? Verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God nor give Him thanks. Instead, what did they do? It says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshipped and served the creature. Described in the context, this is other men, birds, four-footed animals, crawling animals, they worshipped and served the creature, the creation, rather than the creator. Instead of worshipping the God who created everything, what do they do? They worship everything. Notice, uh, the ungodly don't only worship creatures. That text says they serve creatures. You may want to reflect on that the next time you bend down and clean out Fluffy's litter box. Or, ta- or next time Rover takes you for a walk. Our cultures eat up with worshiping and serving creatures. Personally, I kind of like my creatures served, well, medium well. <laughs> Baked potato on the side, some fixins at Christmas time. But because God's creation and His creatures are here that they're here to serve us. 
That's what they're here to do. Our, our culture is getting that entirely reversed here. And we're serving the creatures. And it's a sin to place creatures on a pedestal and serve them. We're not to do that. Creatures are to be what 1 Timothy 4 describes as foods which God created to be gratefully shared. It's creation. It's there to serve us. Now, you might want to use some discernment in what you're sharing there at Christmas dinner. Obviously, some things are better than others, but the creation is here to serve us. We benefit from creation. Now, do you and I as Christians, are we the only ones who benefit from all of this, from the food, from creation? Or do unbelievers benefit from it as well? Because we're given so much, it's why we say grace before every meal. Grace. It's because we humbly acknowledge that the food that is given to us each day, it's provided to us, is by grace. We don't deserve it. It didn't come from us. We don't earn it. God has given it to us to be gratefully shared to others. Yet, although unbelievers may not say grace, maybe they do our tradition, but though they might not say grace, they're still receiving grace. They are getting the Christmas dinner just like the rest of us. That's common grace. God provides that out of His goodness. Another component to this, closely related with His creation, is he, God permits believers and unbelievers alike to equally participate in the open exchange of God's creation. That is, commodities, real estate, natural resources, livestock. We call it commerce, right? We, we, we call it commerce, and, and though sinful man, obviously, he can manipulate it, he can lie about it, he can cheat concerning values, quantities, or wages. Everyone benefits from the mining, the production, the harvest, the exchange, consumption, and even disposal of God's creation. Everybody is benefiting from com- commerce. It's all common grace. Everyone ought to be praising God for what he provides us to benefit from. And and in any society, commerce thrives, and the standard of living increases, by the way, but commerce thrives on the backs of those who do a good job. The ones who produce the finest product, and they sell or trade with the best skill. But many ideologies would remove that incentive out of doing your best with what God gave you. They just say, don't worry about it. God's not a socialist. He's not. From the beginning, man was commanded to cultivate the ground so that it would yield its fruit, Genesis 2. And by God's common grace, every man and woman has been given skills, you've been given abilities that you can use to experience increase. You can do that. Some will utilize them, other people will not utilize them. But everybody has been giving the ability for increase by God's common grace. Unbelievers, believers, the same. Each person on the planet has has been provided the opportunity to increase their goods. Not equal opportunity, but opportunity. Everyone's been given opportunity. And and by observing God's moral laws and our innate capability to, to recognize what's right, what's ethical, we have the ability to prosper. 
we have the ability to prosper. And the founders of our country recognized this, and they instituted these principles of free commerce in, in our governing documents as a nation. That's why our society has flourished, because of God's common grace has given us a lot, and a lot to work with. He's given us a lot of skills to use to, to increase. It should cause us to worship that we're in a country like this, this Christmas season, that has all the abundance that we have. People need to be challenged. People need to be motivated. They need to be driven to use the skills that God has given them or you. You need to be challenged. Uh, Proverbs says, go to the ant, you sluggard, right? And learn from him. We need to learn about God's common grace and how it works. So, so by God's common grace, what he's given to everyone on the planet, everyone has inherent skills, they have abilities, they can be utilized for the purpose of material gain, getting stuff. Jacob, if you recall in Genesis, back in chapter 30, he understood basic genetics. Uh, he knew how physical traits were handed down from one generation of sheep and goat to another. He understood that, how that was passed down to lamb and goats. But Laban, you know, that was his father-in-law. He didn't get it. He didn't, he didn't understand that stuff. And Jacob used his knowledge as a shepherd to increase his flocks. Laban's flocks, what? They declined, right? But now, if you're a young person, this Christmas season, I'd like you to pay attention now, if you're a young person especially, even if you're a little older, if you're in midlife, a lot of people here have have changed direction in midlife, and God has really blessed them. But, but please listen here. Jacob had some natural God-given ability that he could recognize traits, genetics, other things, and crossbreeding the sheep and the goats. And his intelligence helped him in breeding the spotted animals with the health, healthiest animals. The best ones came out with spots. He had chosen the ones with spots. If my memory recalls, I didn't read through the whole passage. But that's not the only resource that Jacob relied upon. There were no microscopes, there were no genetic tests back in his day. How did he know how the markings, the spots, what other traits would be passed down from the mommy and daddy sheep to the baby sheep, the lambs? How did he know that? Was it just his innate ability was it just what God had given him as far as knowledge and understanding? Do you have any farm background at all? If you've been around animals, horses, whatever it is, how do you learn about how traits are passed down? You work with them. You observe them. You're out with the flocks. You are, you are in the ditches, getting your fingernails dirty, young folks, and you're learning, you're observing. It's not just your innate ability through your skills and your mind and your ability to think. That's a big one. But Jacob was in there working with them. He saw what traits were carried down from which uh, use. He saw from, from which animals things were passed down. He was working. He was working. And, and Laban, he appears he was kind of more laying around in the tent. So Jacob saw and, and, and saw the healthy, healthy offspring... He called the animals that were weak. That's not easy work either. Calling animals is not easy work. It's hard work. So he's in the trenches, crossbreeding the strong, especially the strong with the spots. 
Those would end up in his flock from the deal that he made. And he had this natural ability, and he studied his animals. He applied it. He realized that hard work of culling animals would pay off, young folks. Laban, eh, he's kind of lazy. He relied on what Jacob might do. Jacob can go out in the sun. But who prospered in the end? And here's, here's a lesson on common grace. Like the book of Proverbs, which are general truths now. Proverbs are general truths, they're not law. They're what we generally observe when behaviors happen. Um, they're generally reliable and true, not always true. But like the book of Proverbs, when you observe hard work in Scripture, it's not always, but usually followed by reward. Folks, you need to work hard. Generally, it is followed by reward. You have opportunities to take what God's given you by common grace and go out into the world, to go out when you get out of school, to go out when you change careers in midlife, and do well. God, by common grace, has given you the ability to do well, but you are going to have to stick with it. You're going to have to take what God has given you to excel. You're going to have to work hard. You have the ability to prosper. It's not a guaranteed fringe benefit of being a Christian. It's not. You're going to have to work for it. It's a consequence of of common grace. That's why you'll find people like Bill Gates, Oprah, J.D. Rockefeller. I mean, these are all obvious unbelievers. No reconciliation to God. No salvation there at all. Yet they're prospering by what? Common grace. And then you have those like Robert Letourneau, started Letourneau University, if you know the story there, behind him and his fortune. Truett Cathy, founder of Chick-fil-A. You've got uh, talented people like Michael W. Smith. A lot of these believers have also become quite wealthy. You have the ability to go out. Some use their abilities for evil. Some use it for good. Believers use their gain to glorify Christ. Unbelievers use their gain to draw attention to themselves. The bottom line is this. Your abilities to achieve gain in the new year when we go forward is a result of common grace. It includes believers, unbelievers. As anyone can see, acquiring power, acquiring wealth, social status, money, a lot of it is no indication that you're in a good standing with God. No barometer of whether or not you are saved or redeemed. It's not a quality of redemptive grace and salvation. It is a quality of common grace. Can we be certain? Yes. James says, very familiar again, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes to you in assembly with a gold ring, dressed in fine clothes, there also comes in a man with poor and dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes? And you say, sit here in a good place. You say to the poor man, though, stand over there, sit by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? What have they distinguished upon? They've distinguished upon how much God likes that person by how much they have. They've made evil distinctions among themselves. And James says, listen, my brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? The answer is yes. 
But James adds to that, but you have dishonored the poor man. Throughout the history of Christ's church, most, most Christians have been poor. But I'm going to say one thing. It doesn't demand that you remain poor. God doesn't demand that you remain poor. If you have the skills, you have the ability, you should work as hard as you can. You should go out and achieve as much as you can. Part of it you can return to God. Christians are not lazy people. Christians are hard workers. They see opportunity. They get up in the morning. Be careful. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, remember? But God does not say you shouldn't go out there and work hard in the new year. That you shouldn't take what God has given you and try to thrive with the opportunities that he gives you. Here's some application. Again, for especially for the young folks, I'd say even people 70 years old that are changing over in life. This isn't just for young folks. Thank God for his common grace and learn how to apply it. And here's some application. Discern your giftedness. What are you good at? Look at your giftedness. Um, Take an honest self-examination. Get help from others if you need it. What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Can you kick a football 85 yards? Might have some promise there. Are you good at math? Can you build stuff? Are you good with that? Do you know how to draw well? Do you have an engineering mind? Whatever it is, be honest with yourself. If you're five, if you're five, four hundred and thirty-five pounds, don't go for an MBA contract. Be honest; it ain't going to happen. There's certain things that certain of us, certain people of us, can't do. We just have to realize that and look at what we can do. You can't be anything you want to be. You can't. Culture will tell you that, but you really can't. You can strive to be the best that you can be, and then you can allow God to open the doors so He gets the glory. So be honest with yourself, look at yourself, then exploit your passions. Exploit your passions. If you have a God-given talent, if you're good at something, you have the skill and the ability, and it allows you to excel at something that you love, something you enjoy, you got two out of three in the bag. You got two out of three in the bag in common grace. You got the skills, you like doing it, you're halfway there. Thirdly then, be responsible. Be responsible. When an open door, uh, when God opens a door, folks, get up and go to work in the morning. Get up and go to work in the morning. On time. Pursue continuing education. Get a haircut. Wear appropriate clothing for whatever it is you are doing. Dress the part. Be respectful to the people you're working for. Look for the promotions. Pray for God for His direction, what He's going to do with you, what He's given you in common grace. You know those ear ear hoop things? Don't get those. Don't get those. Look at where you want to go. Look what's going to hinder you, what's going to help you to excel in whatever environment that is. Lord, uh, He's so good. He gives us so much opportunity that we don't see that we don't see, we don't seize. Be responsible. Even unbelievers can do it. They do it all the time. They excel all the time. I'm going to look at one more common grace facet here. Um, share one more. And God's so good. The grace just goes on and on and on. He restrains evil. 
King David said that he restrains evil with, uh, when he went to Abigail, and Abigail's husband, I forget his name, Nabal. And he was going to strike him. He said that God restrained him from striking him. God can restrain us from being as bad as we actually could be. Praise God for that. There's all kinds of common grace. But let's look at, uh, at civilization just for a moment. And human government, because this is the world we're living in. We're talking about common grace and how everyone is affected. You know, after, after the fall, sin entered the world. And it took a, one entire generation for a man to decide it was an all right idea to kill his brother. Right? Cain killed Abel. One generation is all it took. And society just degenerated from there. It just got worse and worse. And in Genesis chapter, Genesis chapter 6, we observe that just after a few more generations, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was continually evil all the time. So society had degenerated into just chaos and anarchy. Really ugly. So the Lord told Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. Then we have the documentation of the rest of the story, the building of the ark, the structure, the size. And, And when the waters had receded, God instituted what we know of as human government. Human government. In Genesis 9, 6, God told Noah and his sons, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man's blood it shall be shed. So man now not only fears God, man's going to fear other men. God has brought government in, the median of the minds, in order to restrain evil. And government's, you know, not dispensed only to believers, right? It's dispensed to unbelievers equally. Everyone gets the benefits of this common grace. Civil government is common grace. And and the government has existed in forms of theocracies and uh, monarchies, police states, democracies, kingdoms. They all have one thing in common. They all have one thing in common. Civil government prevents man from becoming as bad as he can be. That's what it's there for. To keep order, God installed governments to bear the sword. It's common grace. Romans 13 says that every person is to be subjection to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority, he says? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, meaning government, is a minister of God to you for good. It's a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, Paul writes, for government does not bear the sword for nothing. Again, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And then he goes on from there saying that you you pay your taxes, you give honor to position, render to Caesar what's Caesar, give, give honor... Uh, to whom honor, that's what Jesus taught. Because government is a good thing. Even the worst kind of government is a good thing. While Paul was writing here, Nero was emperor. He was not a nice guy. 
Paul's writing, be subjection to even Nero's regime. And why is that? It's because when you have the Roman centurions going around out then policing, and you've got a murderer who's on the loose, when those centurions catch him, that murderer's going to no longer be on the loose. They're going to deal with him in a harsh way. It was a harsh government. But the people who were honest and dignified in general, again in general, received grace. Paul ended up giving his head, yet he said, submit to government. Government is a minister of God benefiting both believers and unbelievers. It is common grace. And in a close here, this week, I received the distinct privilege of being invited to St. Lucie County Courthouse to be screened for jury duty. It's been a tiring week. And I had so many tasks to do, to be honest, I didn't want to be there. In fact, the thought crossed my mind, if I would just lie about these questions, I could probably be out of here by about 9 a.m. But I didn't. I said, you know what? I'm here for a reason. Instead, I just determined I was going to answer the attorneys as honestly as I could for what they're asking. Just let the chips fall. So the chips fell on me being juror number six. And later on, I end up being jury foreman. That's where the chips fell this week. But a long story short, you know, none of us really wanted to be there. That first day, and it was an all-male jury. The judge said rare that they see that. It was an all-male jury, and it was a civil trial. But before heading home on that first day after jury selection, it went on and on. It was, a tough, it was tough to find people who weren't impacted by the situation. And... Um, after that first selection, we did start in here opening argu- arguments that first day. My continent started to change. Uh-huh. Maybe I need to be here. And, and, and the second day, it brought testimony. became evident that one of these two parties was going to have to be protected from the other. I'm like, this is exactly where I need to be. They need minds that will, will listen to the facts and try to determine what is right. And by the third day... It was obvious that somebody was going to have to step in or they were going to take advantage or there was going to be a person that was going to take advantage and make a victim out of the other person. There was false accusation. And at the end in the deliberation room, uh, we did just that. It was a unanimous verdict right after we finished eating our free lunch. Um... And folks, I tell you what, the system worked. It doesn't always work, but it worked. And and it was a privilege to have my week disrupted by the government, to go in and serve on that. It was a joy by the end. Really, to be honest, uh, it it was so refreshing, tiring, but refreshing. And, and, And I came to this conclusion, I'm trying to think of how I'm going to flesh out a topical sermon. And, and I started looking at this, because Gerald and I had a few weeks ago talked about common grace. It's Christmas time, and, and how God is so good to all of us. And uh, I looked and I said, you know what? I, I saw that work. I got to share Christ in the uh, jury room, uh, share gospel tracts as well. And uh, I saw that, that as God's standard of righteousness, as His biblical righteousness penetrates a society, increasingly penetrates 
a society, it also increasingly benefits that society. That's God's common grace. When his church is going out and penetrating society. And, and, and you and I need to be that light. We need to be a standard of God's righteousness that can go out and share with others. Other sound people out there, of course, there's unbelievers with sound judgment, but to share with them that light of righteousness, of truth. We need to proclaim uh, what uh, uh, God's forgiveness is available through Christ. And, and everywhere that we do, common grace abounds and redemptive grace increases. Common grace goes out and abounds, and redemptive grace, those who are redeemed, increases. And as people are drawn to that light, common grace abounds. People are redeemed from that. And anywhere that God's word becomes silent, anywhere where Christians don't testify, anywhere that God's justice and man's liberty and Christ's mercy are not kept in balance, any society that that's not kept in balance, darkness creeps in. The light goes dim. Society goes dark. And we can take a look through history, through Europe, and the locations that the gospel has gone. Even think of Ireland and St. Patrick that went over there and, and as a slave he was taken prisoner over there by the barbarians. Just popped into my head. And he was able to escape and get back to England. You know St. Patrick was not Irish, right? He's English. Irish won't tell you that. But he was taken prisoner by the barbarians. And these were some of the most barbaric people. The Irish at that time were horrible. Do I have my history right, Gerald? Used to teach history at the school. And he escaped, went back to England, and he became a Christian. And what did God call him to do? He was going to be the light. And he went back. He followed God's call to go back to those barbarians and teach them about Jesus Christ. And the whole society, the whole island changed. It became so good from, from Patrick going back over there. It, the people became so, uh, so saturated with biblical righteousness and Christ and redemption that they have been celebrating St. Patrick ever since. Is that not just amazing? One man can go onto an island and change an entire culture by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what St. Patrick's Day is about. You'll never hear about it. People tell you it's green beer. No, it's not. It's not. But we need to be that light that goes out, because is everywhere that, that Christianity has left when it's become post-Christian is going darker and darker all the time. This planet's going dark. Europe's going dark. The U.S. is going dark. It is. It is. And we need to be the light. We need to turn it on. We need to turn up the heat. And, and there exists no political party, no individual, no, no matter how smart he or she is. Nobody's gonna, no president's going to save us. They'll have an impact. But no government party's going to save us, no matter how talented they are. The only answer that's going to come to our culture is when courageous Christians go out and take the gospel and spread it. And God builds his church, and the voter base changes, and that's reflected by those who are elected. We need to be the light. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city 
set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Then he explains that Jesus says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what we are to do. And we're all ministers of common grace. We're all ministers of common grace. And if you're still wondering from the, from the beginning of this message about this redemptive grace that we've talked about, redemptive grace, if, you, if you're not sure you received, you've been a recipient of that redemptive grace, let me close with this. We all know that God is not only man's savior, right? God is also judge. We know that. Christ will judge in the end. God is judge. God will judge disobedience. And this week, each day as the jurors departed the courtroom during the week, the judge instructed us with this. He said, you will not discuss the case with anyone. You will not talk about it. You will not research it. You won't look online. You won't go to your cell phone. Every time we walked out, I was a female judge. Excellent judge, by the way. We were treated great up there. I'm going to say that. Um, but, but she said, you will not share this. You will not research it until the end of the case because it will interfere with the evidence. And you know what? Keeping all that stuff in, that can be tough. I don't know if you ever experienced that or not. And, and even one evening, I was thinking to myself, you know, what would happen if I did share with someone and the news got out? What would happen? Would I be in trouble? Would I? After all, you know what? I didn't sign any contract when I went in there that I wouldn't share anything. I never signed anything. Even when we took the oath that we'd be truthful during questioning and and the oath of being a juror, I never signed any contract, nor did I take an oath that said I would not share details of the case, nor did I take an oath that I wouldn't research it. I never promised anything. What would the judge be able to do? Then it dawned on me. It doesn't matter if I hadn't signed a contract. Judy Dury, jury duty is compulsory. All orders of the judge are compulsory. What the judge says in their jurisdiction is so. You don't have to agree to it. I'm bound simply uh, because I am in the judge's jurisdiction. I'm in their court, and what they say goes. Doesn't matter if I signed anything. Doesn't matter if I agreed to acknowledge the judge even, who has the authority in the jurisdiction. What the judge says is so. And if I disobey, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. And that judge has the authority to convict me and condemn me, even haul me off to jail, put me in the lockup. Even if I never agreed to or even acknowledged that the judge had any authority. You know where I'm going here? That's how it is in a court of law. And God is the judge over his creation and you are his subjects. It doesn't matter if you agreed to be born. It doesn't matter if you agreed that you're under jurisdiction. It doesn't matter if you acknowledge God's laws doesn't matter if you acknowledge God exists. God says you are guilty. You've broken your law, His laws. You are in His jurisdiction. What He says goes. And Romans 3.23 says, we all know this by heart, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone is guilty. 
But thankfully, your judge is also a God of mercy, a God of grace. And he desires to forgive you. But he can't just let a lawbreaker go free. He can't just wipe the slate clean, or else he fails to be what? Just. He fails to preserve justice. He fails to preserve his righteousness, because at that point, he'd be a corrupt judge because he didn't punish what needed to be punished, right? He can't just let a sinner go free. Or else punishment isn't weighed out and God becomes corrupt. Punishment must occur. Sin must be punished. So God provided a substitute for the punishment. A righteous man, one who had never sinned, that stood in the gap for you and me. He sent his son into the world to be conceived by the Holy Spirit and then born to the Virgin Mary. And that was that first Christmas morning. And born into human flesh just like us, we have a Savior who is sympathetic with our weaknesses. He was tempted. He was tried. He suffered. Hebrews 4.14 says of Christ, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to God's throne of grace, so that we may receive the mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. There is grace available to you today, not just common grace. There is redemptive grace available to you. Jesus stepped in. He took the punishment that you deserve, that I deserve. He bore the guilt. He bore the shame. He bore the stripes. But Scripture says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For by His stripes you are healed. For you were all continually strained like sheep, but you, know, you now have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. This Christmas, it is time to stop straying from Christ. Stop straying from God. Return to God. God says, return to me, I will turn to you. Trust Him for your salvation. Receive redemptive grace. Go out and worship Him for all the goodness that He has given us. Trust in Christ. Make this the first Christmas, if you haven't, that you now worship Christ as your Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray for the weary, Lord, those who have been coming to Christmas, Lord, lacking. Lord, those who are struggling, Lord, those who are sick, Lord, for the poor in spirit who are troubled, Lord, who are looking for hope. Lord, that is unbelievers and believers alike, that you would demonstrate to them your, your grace, Lord God, that you would help them to have what they need because, Lord, we know that you care for your creation, so we care for your creation. 
And Lord, we pray that as ministers of grace, ministers of reconciliation, Lord, servants of yours, that you would draw people to you. Lord, that you'd help help them to overcome our faults, our weaknesses, Lord, uh, yet be drawn to you through your word. That the truth of the scriptures, Lord, that you've given out would bear its fruit. That you would build your church, Lord God, and that you would go out. That light would show bright, Lord, and uh, that we'd be drawn together to worship you. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for Christmas. Lord, help us to be more like your son, Lord. Thank you for all that you provided. In the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen.